Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Quartet, the gospel in four movements. The New Testament opens with four tellings of the story of Jesus. We call these first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels. Because the Gospels are the Gospel. The Gospel is the story of Jesus Christ. And these four evangelists, as they are sometimes called because they give us the gospel, these four evangelists all tell the same essential story of the life and teaching, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, but they all have their own unique voice and their own particular theological emphasis. So we have not one But we have four Gospels. We have not one perspective, but four. Just like we have north, south, east, and west, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just as you can look at things from different directions, north, south, east, and west, we can look at Jesus through particular perspectives called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the evangelists, were inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they were not dictated to. Say amen to that. Uh, They're inspired. That is, the Holy Spirit was working with them. Their writings are inspired, but they're not being dictated to. So inspiration is not dictation. So that's why you can still hear their own voices. You hear Mark's urgent voice. And Matthew's very Jewish voice. Luke's Gentile voice. And John's very spiritual voice. You hear them talking about Jesus in an inspired way, but in their own voice. So, this sheds some light on the nature of inspiration. Inspiration is not dictation, it's a dance. It's a dance between the Holy Spirit and the human being. So if the four Gospels don't agree in every single historical detail, and they don't, It doesn't matter because the theology of who Jesus is is far more important than mere historic biography. They're not just trying to give you a biography. They're trying to show you how God is revealed in Christ. And so today we're ready for Matthew. Matthew is not the first gospel written. That is Mark. But it's the first in the order of our New Testament. So if you... If you have just a, a New Testament, it starts with Matthew. Or if you, you, know, you have a Bible and you're, you're looking for where the New Testament starts, it starts with Matthew. So Matthew is where we make this giant leap from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it's, it's really quite a, a journey. It's, there's a definite change. I mean, there's a reason why we use language like Old and New Testament. And it begins with Matthew. And it begins in chapter 1 with verse 1 like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew opens the gospel 
that the way things are arranged opens the New Testament with these words, the book of the geology of ge- genealogy of Jesus Christ. But it's, it's actually the word Genesis. So it, it's, that's the actual word in Greek, Genesis. So it, it, it actually reads like this, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. So we could say that Matthew is the genesis of the New Testament. Just like, you know, we have Genesis in the Old Testament. Well, the genesis of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. But, now stick with me on this one. But, in a Christian reading of Scripture, Matthew is actually the genesis for the whole Bible. For it's only as we look back into the Old Testament through the light of Christ that we can read the Old Testament in a proper Christian light. So you can read the Old Testament, but if you're going to read the Old Testament as a Christian, you're not going to be able to read it until you get to the New Testament and then look back and go, oh, now I see. So the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... And the son of Abraham. That's how it begins. And then what follows is a genealogy of Jesus going back through David all the way back to the patriarch Abraham. So the New Testament opens not with teachings and miracles of Jesus, but with a genealogy. That reminds me of a story. Two of my best friends... Nikki Nikitin and Dmitry Polyakov. Um, it's actually Igor and, and Dmitry, but we call them Nikki and Paul. Nikki Nikitin and Paul Polyakov, two of my very best friends. I think I met them in 95, maybe 94, something like that. I don't re- remember what year it was. They are the founders, leaders of a charismatic Christian denomination all throughout Russia known as Union of Christians. Uh, my good friend Nikki died in 2015, so I knew him for 20 years. I wasn't able to attend the funeral, but I wrote a eulogy for him that was read there. Dear friend, loved him very much. Um, you know, Paul is now heading that ministry. But uh, they're the ones that brought me to Russia eight times. And I would always have adventures with them. We would do pastor's conferences, but there would always be some adventure involved, whether planned or unplanned. And I remember being in Moscow on the coldest night in 17 years. It was minus 42. Dang. Minus 42. And we had an outdoor prayer meeting at Red Square. It was a little shorter than what we'd planned. Uh, it, was, it was on Orthodox Christmas Eve. And so we went from this outdoor prayer meeting at Red Square to an Orthodox service in a massive Orthodox cathedral. And then after that, we went to a a, a place where they were, a barbecue place, of all things, in Moscow where they were playing American-style blues. It was was just an event. We stayed up almost all night. It was was great. Uh, I've been with them when when, uh, they took me one time to... uh, we're going off. I said, where are we going? And they said, well, we're going to go off into the Siberian forest. Oh, and, and bring, your, bring your swimsuit. And uh, I, I've gone swimming. It, it wasn't that cold. It was, like, I don't know, it was only like about 10 below that night. And uh, outdoors, but in, 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 in natural thermal hot springs. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, I've traveled with them from Moscow 
to no from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok and back. I don't know if you know I don't know if you're any good at geography. That's 12 time zones one way and 12 time zones back and you never leave Russia. It's a big country. And so these are these are my I think I got a picture of uh, that's from 2007 Perry and I uh, Nikki's the one in the white coat there next to me on the end on this side that's that's Paul in the green coat. There's Perry. And there's a couple of other uh, Siberian pastors that we were doing a conference with. That was in Siberia in 2007. But what I want to tell you is how they became believers. Um, They were KGB kids. They they grew up the sons of KGB officers, which right away is like, oh, man, that's really, that's crazy. And uh, they were KGB kids. Nikki, in fact, was born, his mom, Nina, ran a... Uh, reprogramming camp, think brainwashing camp for, well, Christians and other dissidents to turn them into good communists. And Nikki was actually born in that camp that his mom was running. Uh, then later in life, they, they're, they're, they're in their teens and their 20s, and they become art students. That's where they met. They met in art school in St. Petersburg. And in, as part of art school, they were, they were working in art restoration in a church. The Soviets uh, didn't allow the churches to function as churches, but they kept, them, they kept many of the buildings for the sake of their artistic value. And they were working on a mosaic, art restoration of a mosaic of Jesus, and an American tourist during Perestroika was there and asked them through an interpreter, do you know who that is? And they said, yeah, we know it's Jesus. Do you know anything about him? Nope, not much. And uh, so they arranged a, a, a clandestine meeting. Uh, they weren't supposed to be meeting. They weren't supposed to be meeting where they were meeting. But they met with this American tourist who gave them a copy, a Gideon New Testament. You know those little, those little bitty ones, you know? Gave them one of those in English. In English, yeah, in English. And they didn't know any English. But what they did is they translated it. And they translated it. It starts off character for character, because, you know, the Russian alphabet and the English alphabet aren't even the same. So you can't just start with the first word. You've got to start with the first letter. Okay, that letter in English is like this. It would be painstaking, but they translated the entire New Testament, and they became believers, and now, you know, have led this great ministry. Uh, I've, seen, I've seen the actual copy where, where they... Where they translated word for word an English New Testament into Russian. And they're telling me this story, and they showed it to me. I said, well, I said, Matthew, it opens with a genealogy. Were you disappointed? They said, no. We knew it meant something. We didn't know what it meant, but we knew it meant something. (laughs) And they were right. It does mean something. It means that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the promises that God had made in the Old Testament. That it's all coming true in Jesus. So what was God's great promise to Abraham? Because Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. What's the great promise of Abraham that God made to Abraham? That his seed would bless all of the families of the earth. That comes true in Jesus. And what is the great promise that God made to David? That one of his sons would sit upon an eternal throne. And that promise comes through to Jesus. So Jesus is the seed of Abraham greater than Isaac, who really does bless all of the nations. 
Jesus is the son of David, greater than Solomon, who really does sit upon an eternal throne. Amen and amen. So, if you remember last week, immediately was, was a key word in the book of Mark. There's an urgency and everything's immediately, immediately, immediately. Well, if immediately is the recurring word in the gospel of Mark conveying his urgency, fulfilled, fulfilled is the recurring word in Matthew, specifically often used as that the scripture might be fulfilled. More than any other gospel writer, Matthew draws upon the Old Testament, and in doing so, he shows us how the Old Testament can only truly be understood in the light of Christ. The famous Danish philosopher and Christian thinker Soren Kierkegaard said, We understand life backwards, but we must live it forwards. How many of you have figured that out? If you're a little older, you've figured that out. That, that life only kind of makes sense as you look back and you go, oh, yeah. yeah now, now I kind of understand what's going on there, what was happening, what the purpose. Life is only understood backwards, but you, you have to live it forward. And so you're going through stuff and you go, what is this? Mean? What is this? Mean? And eventually you get to the point and you look back and you go, oh, now I get it. It's very much the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are related. We go through the Old Testament, you're just making your way, but you really only understand it when you look back. Okay, that's, that's a philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard. I can do better. Uh, the movie, The Sixth Sense. 1999 film by M. Night Shyamalan starring Bruce Willis. Uh, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what happens. If you haven't seen it too bad, you had 20 years and you missed your chance. <laughs> At the end of the movie... This, this is the I See Dead People movie. I See Dead People. And it's this kind of this mysterious, strange, a little bit creepy movie that you can't quite, until you get to the very end and you realize, oh my gosh, he was dead all along. See, there I just spoiled it. He was dead all along. And you look back and you go, now the rest of the movie makes sense. It didn't make sense until you got to the end. The Old Testament doesn't make a lot of sense until you get to Jesus. And then you look back and, oh, oh, that's, that's what that's about. That's what, oh, that's what that's about. That's exactly. Ma- Matthew was a huge fan of M. Night Shyamalan's work. He loved the sixth sense. And that's how he, underst- that's how he presented his gospel. It's, it's, kinda, it's, it's one of those things. So let's get an example. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, just very early on. Verse 22, Matthew writes... All this took place to fulfill, there's that word, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is very interesting. Matthew is talking here, he's writing about the virgin birth of Jesus. And he says, now this is to fulfill what's written by the prophet. The prophet is Isaiah. It's Isaiah 7, 14, where there is a verse in the Old Testament that says the virgin, that's the way it is, but it's, it really just means in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, it just means the young woman shall have a child, and you'll call him Emmanuel because you'll figure out that God's with us and on our side. And by the time the child is weaned, Judah will be delivered from these two great enemies that are threatening Judah. And so, 
in the original context that Isaiah is writing in the 7th century B.C., it's simply a prophecy that says the young woman, probably the wife of King Ahaz, will conceive and have a, give birth to a child and call the child God is with us because God really is with us. And you'll know that by the time the child is weaned, these two enemies that you're so afraid of, King Ahaz, uh, they're not going to be a threat anymore. Okay, that's all that verse says, apparently, until you get to Jesus. And then you go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's more going on here. It, it's not just, it's when the virgin conceives. It will be God with us. You could never read Isaiah 7.14 in the 7th century, way back in the 7th century B.C., read Isaiah 7.14, oh, I see, I see, Messiah is going to be born of a virgin. You would never see that. You couldn't predict that. But when it occurs and you look back and you go, oh, that's what that really meant. That's how that's, I see dead people. That's, that's how it's fulfilled. That's how it comes to pass. You couldn't predict that Christ would be born of a virgin from Isaiah 7, 14 until after it happened. This makes the point that the Old Testament can only be read and understood in its proper Christian light as we look back on it in the light of Christ. Here's another example. Chapter 2, verse 17. Yes. Then was fulfilled, there's that word again, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. All right, this is at the end of Matthew describing what King Herod did when he found out there was a child born, king of the Jews, and he sent those death squads into Bethlehem to kill every male baby two and under. And he says, well, this is to fulfill what Jeremiah said. And he has this, this quote from Jeremiah, chapter 31. Um, well, in the time... Let me explain what's going on here. In the time of the patriarchs, going way, way back, in the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, Rachel died in childbirth near Bethlehem, the wife of Jacob. Rachel, the wife of Jacob, the father or the mother of Joseph and Benjamin. She dies in childbirth. I was giving birth to Benjamin. And she's buried right there, right there at the entrance of Bethlehem, and her tomb is there to this day. And she becomes kind of a patroness of, of Hebrew children. And with a prophetic act of imagination, Jeremiah, in the 6th century B.C., knowing that Babylon's about to invade, and he knows that as this as the, as the armies of Nebuchadnezzar invade, that there's going to be death and destruction and even little children are going to die. And he says, that, oh, Rachel is weeping. How's he write it? He says, uh, a voice was heard in Ramah. That's right there. Beth, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But now, Matthew 600 years later, sees something else. In other words, you couldn't predict from Jeremiah chapter 31 how King Herod would try to kill Jesus, but looking back, we see it. We go, oh, I see that there. Another example, chapter 4, verse 
12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, that was his hometown, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be, there it is again, fulfilled. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. This is from, this is from Isaiah. The way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. This is from Isaiah 9. So you, again, you couldn't read Isaiah 9 in the 6th century B.C. and predict that the Messiah would move from Nazareth to Capernaum. But once it happens, you go, oh, I see what Isaiah was really, what the Spirit was really inspiring Isaiah to say. Again, it makes the point that we can't really understand the Old Testament until we look back into it with the light of Jesus. And this pattern continues throughout the gospel, all the way through. Matthew's all the time saying that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, and then quoting from the Old Testament. The last one is uh, found in chapter 27, verse 10, having to do with the incident of Judas being paid 30 pieces of silver as he betrays for his betrayal of Jesus. Remember the the, uh, the, the priests give him 30 pieces of silver. And the final, that the scripture might be fulfilled in Matthew is chapter 27, verse 10, where, well, this is interesting, where, where Matthew says, and he, he quotes from the Old Testament, he says, as the prophet Jeremiah said, and he quotes this passage about 30 pieces of silver being exchanged. And the thing is, he, he attributes it to Jeremiah. It's actually from Zechariah. It's from it's Zechariah 11, verse 13. And so there, there's a mistake. Does that, does that upset you? It doesn't bother me at all. It's inspiration, not dictation. It's just, it's just simply thinking, he's thinking of this verse. He's thinking of a right verse that talks about 30 pieces of silver being exchanged. And then it also involves a potter's field. It very much fits the whole story of Judas. But Matthew says, as the prophet Jeremiah, and you search Jeremiah and you can't find it, and it's, oh, dang it, it's in Zechariah. Well, that, that, that makes the point. What matters is how we're being informed about Christ, not if you got the right address or not. And so we don't have to, we don't have to, we don't have to worry about things like that. I certainly don't, doesn't bother me in the least. All right, so Matthew uses the word Genesis in the first sentence of his gospel to indicate that now the whole Bible, the whole Bible, must be reread in the light of Christ. So it's like this. It's like, you know, we have a Bible. I mean, what Jesus called the Bible is what we call the Old Testament. What Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John thought of as the Bible was the Old Testament. What Peter, James, and John thought of as the Bible was the Old Testament. That's all there was. And uh, they said, we have our Bible and it's the Word of God. It's inspired. But now we have to reread the whole thing. Because now we have a light that illumines it. We find out what's really going on through the light of Jesus. 
It's, it'd be like, I keep going, it'd be like trying to, exp- it'd be like if we're right in the middle of Sixth Sense, the first time you're seeing it, and I just, I just pause it, we're, you know, streaming it on Netflix, and I pause it, and I say, okay, tell me what's going on. And they'll kind of tell me what's going on. And I'll go, yeah, okay. And then we wait till we get to the end. And I go, you didn't see it, did you? And, if, and how, many, how many of you have seen that movie, and the moment... You're like, well, how did I miss that? He was wearing the same clothes the whole darn movie. How come I didn't notice that? And, and it's, that's really, that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James are all saying. They're saying, we've had this Bible, we call it the Old Testament. It's been good, but now we have to reread it. Because now we know, how the, we know the ending. Because Jesus is the omega that explains the alpha. In fact, he is the alpha and the Omega, and all things come to light in a reading through the lens of Jesus Christ. We could say it this way. All Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if a biblical text doesn't look Christ-like, we haven't yet read it right. That's worth holding on to. All Scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So if a biblical text doesn't look Christ-like, We haven't yet read it right. The other great theme in Matthew's gospel is Jesus' call to discipleship. Um, Matthew places more emphasis on discipleship than any other gospel writer. That's that's why... Thank you, Perry. My lovely assistant. All right, hold on. All right, for my next trick... Um, that's why, so, so if, if, if Matthew is the one who places much emphasis on, you know, if you're going to be saved, you have to follow Jesus. I mean, I mean, salvation is worked into your life by actually living out what Jesus is teaching. So that, so that evangelism and discipleship are the same thing. They're, they're the call to the same thing, to follow Jesus. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew. Three chapters, just three chapters of just nothing but red letters. Just Jesus teaching, 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 saying, this is how you follow me. It's like this. It looks like this. You have, you have Luke has a half a chapter on the Sermon on the Mount, except it's not on a mount. It's on the plain. It's a little bit different. Mark doesn't have it at all. John doesn't have it at all. Matthew is prominent. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Because because Jesus is the new Moses. Going up on a new mountain. Not the Mount Sinai, but on Mount Beatitudes. And he's getting a new Torah. A new law. And he begins to preach. He begins to teach. He begins to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's, do, let's try it. Let's do it call and response. Let's see if you can do this. I bet you can. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Amen. 
That's how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes. And this is so important to Matthew. Mark doesn't even mention it. John doesn't even mention it. Luke a little bit, but it's very abbreviated. Matthew's, no, this is because discipleship, discipleship, living the Jesus way, following Jesus, obeying Jesus is such a big thing in Matthew's gospel. And then we get to verse 17, Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but here's that word, but to fulfill them. Jesus doesn't replace the Old Testament law and the prophets. He fulfills what they were always aiming at. What are, they aim, what, what are the law and prophets trying to achieve? They're trying to produce a people who put God first and, and don't have any idolatry. They put God first. And having put God first, now they love their neighbor as their self. So it's, it's fidelity and justice. The threats to those all the time are idolatry and injustice. Jesus acknowledges that God has been at work in the life of the chosen people, the seed of Abraham, the nation of Israel, to become a just and worshiping society. But he also knows that they have constantly been plagued, as all human tribes and civilizations and peoples have been with the twin sins of idolatry and injustice. But what Jesus does is takes the vocation and the calling of Israel upon his own shoulders and he carries it all the way through to victory. Where Moses comes up short and where Elijah comes up short, Jesus crosses the finish line and establishes a way of living as a people committed to fidelity of worship and just treatment of neighbor And Jesus calls it the kingdom of God. And the church is to be that which embodies that kingdom of God. Amen. So let's let's jump all the way to the end. Or this will be a very, very long sermon. Let's jump all the way. I want to be done before, you know, the 4th of July. Get to, uh, go to Matthew chapter 28, the very end. As if people, like, actually carry Bibles around anymore. Oh, that's, the, that's in the old days. Perry's got one. These people, these people have special crowns in heaven, like Nancy's got two crowns right now. Uh, no, I don't care. We put it on the screen. It's on your phone. You can do whatever you want. Uh, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now, the, this, is, you know, this is after the after everything. His whole ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection... Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. We're not told what the mountain is, but I think it's the mountain where it started. I think it's the same mountain. He starts off, he goes up on a mountain and he gives them the Sermon on the Mountain, the Beatitudes, the Mount of Beatitudes, and now he's going to go back to that word. Wherever they started with him, he's going to meet him there. I think it's Mount Arbel. Uh, Go to Israel with us and we'll point it out to you. We'll, we'll take you up on it, in fact. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Uh, you know, I don't, think, I don't think in this age you ever get beyond the capacity for doubt. Everything can be doubted. What are they doubting? Who knows? They're doubting, you know, is, are we supposed to be worshipping him? I mean, do we worship Messiah? How does that work? Well, we find out we do. Yes, he is God. Very God of very God. Uh, is, is he really? Is that really him? Is he, is he really raised? There's, there's doubts sometimes, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. 
It doesn't, doubt does not disqualify discipleship. You can be a doubting disciple. Why not? And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, so what? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, this, we didn't look at it, but this echoes back to when the devil came to Jesus in the wilderness and said, All authority has been given unto me, and I give it to whoever I want. And if you just kind of compromise your principles... If you just kind of, you know, do things a little bit my way, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a tip of the hat. It's a little bit of bowing down to me. But if you do that, then I'll, then I'll give you all this, and you can do all the good you want with it. But Jesus said, no way, Jose. No, actually, he said, he said, be gone with you, Satan. That's what he said. Be gone with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God only, and him only shall you serve. And Jesus goes all the way through, all the way through his coronation upon the cross, descends into death but is raised on the third day and now all authority how much authority does the devil have on the earth none zero nada because it's all been given to Jesus all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples see discipleship and evangelism are the same thing don't go forth and go, go forth and lead them in sinners prayers and then see if you can talk them into some discipleship stuff Later on, as an optional upgrade. No, go and make disciples, pupils, students, followers, learners of my way. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnicities, all nations, all lands, all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching, 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 teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that Matthew puts in such great detail in his gospel, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And so that's how... Matthew ends his gospel. And after we've heard the gospel story of Jesus, the only appropriate response is to be baptized and become a disciple of Jesus and then go forth and make other disciples of Jesus. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. It's time for us now to come to the table of the Lord.